Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Joining me is the poodle-haired rocker and super editor. See, I balanced the two I out see, there. I yes, see, yeah. nice see what you did. Yeah. I'm not quite sure where the poodle comes into it, really? to be honest. No. Oh, it's a famous what they say about 80s heavy metal. Oh, I thought people. you were directing it specifically at me. Well, specifically kind of poodly. No, no, it's no, okay, no, no. no, fair enough. As long as it's a general reference. It's a general metal it okay. reference. It's Thea awesome. Lenaduzzi there. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is the 99th podcast, my uh, notes say we've done. Our centenary is dangerously close. What are we going to do? Should we lay just an appropriate lay it, lay it, just stop it. <laughs> just call I was going to say lay an appropriate <laughs> wreath. Champagne? Yeah. Although wreaths get people into trouble, I, I Yeah, and wreaths from... are a bit morbid, aren't they? Yeah. So we won't do that. We'll do something. Should we bring cheese? Shall we bring cheese in? <laughs> Matt doesn't look very keen on cheese. No no oh. food in the studio. That's just a challenge now to bring food in. <laughs> Start secreting it in. <laughs> I'm going to in do, our yeah. pockets. Yeah, exactly. Um, by now, you'll all be bored of me beseeching you to subscribe to the TLS and review this podcast, but I'm so committed to the cause that I'm doing it anyway. Coming up on this show number 99... Who on earth was Charlotte Lennox, you might ask? Well, she was the only novelist reviewed by Samuel Johnson and a force in 18th century letters. But I'd not heard of her. Min Wilde is going to be here to tell us more. Um, what would happen if you ask an expert literary critic to watch 25 of the top-grossing Hollywood comedies over the last few decades? Well, Robert Douglas Fairhurst, the man who had the dubious pleasure of teaching me English literature for three years, has more or less survived the experience intact and can let us know what comedy says about our culture. And we'll keep our attention glued to the screen and ponder the related question of how women are being treated in film and TV, for that matter. TLS staffer Alice Wadsworth has been looking into it and is in the studio. Rather incredibly, in the course of his long career as a critic, Samuel Johnson reviewed just one novel. And it wasn't anything by Jane Austen, who was still only writing her juvenilia at the time, that Johnson's pen ceased. Rather, it was by one Charlotte Lennox, and the novel in question, The Female Quixote, a reworking of Cervantes published in 1752, did go on to supply the young Austen with a model for how to write female satire. So impressed with Lennox was Johnson that he entered into a lasting and supportive correspondence with her, in which the pair often discussed the challenges of life on Grub Street. 
One of the things Johnson most valued in her, Minwile tells us this week, reviewing a new biography of Lennox, was her preposterous confidence. Richard Samuel, meanwhile, saw fit to include her in his famous painting, The Nine Living Muses of Great Britain. Not that that work attracted much attention when it was unveiled in 1778. It was of women, of course. How is it, then, that so bold a writer, whose life and career intersected with some of the greatest artists and thinkers of her day, should be so little known to most of us now? On the line to deliver literary justice is Min Wilde. Hello, Min. Hello, hi. I'm wondering if you could start by giving us a, kind of, a, a sort of a potted account of Lennox's beginnings, how she came to be on, on Grub Street, because I think her background was quite unusual, wasn't it? Yes, it was. She's a wonderful character because she spans the whole of the the whole of the 18th century, kind of a period of the print explosion, period of this wonderful time where uh, where writing became something that ordinary people could do, uh, you know, in more ordinary ways and more experimental ways and more exciting ways. So she's born in 1720s, she dies in 1804, so she lives a long life, uh, during the course of which she manages to write in a number of interesting ways, around a number of different, in a number of different interesting forms, in fact, she writes a handful of novels. She orchestrates and edits a periodical, which is spe- specifically for women. Uh, she writes this fantastic uh, novel, The Female Quicksote, as she would have called it, uh, uh, which uh, which uh, is an update of Cervantes. And it is really amazing. Uh, I'll say more about that later. And she writes this incredibly cheeky uh, Shakespeare illustrated, which takes Shakespeare to task for all the things that he's done wrong, which is quite surprising uh, from a woman in the middle of the 18th century. So, yeah, she's she's a figure full of energy, I think, really. And uh, this biography is called uh, uh, Charlotte Lennox, An Independent Mind, and she does have one. And I think the reason why we don't hear her name very much, it's subsumed in the larger reason why we don't hear much about, about many 18th century women writers, because they were giants, literary giants in the 18th century. And, you know, to name but a few. So, you know, you can go through your Richardsons and your Fieldings, your Defoe's and, and all of these characters. And, of course, Alexander Pope in poetry. And women, of course, and you know, were, had all, numerous disadvantages in, in terms of education, in terms of social presence, even in terms of even being able to speak out. So traditionally, in literary criticism, 18th century women have been a bit invisible. Are they, are they invisible because of Austen as well? Just, I was just thinking that because Austen then uh, comes along afterwards and kind yeah. of obliterates all traces of what went before her. That's absolutely right. She does. And that's teemingly unfair when you're a fan of um, Fanny Burney, uh, who, who Austen really uh, adored and used, used a lot, and who was her literary foremother, as Jane Spencer calls her. I don't think it is because of Austen. I think it's simply because women tended to be thought of as writers of novels. And of course, the novel is a low, uh, low literary form during the period. It gradually becomes more respectable as the 18th century progresses. But um, women are thought of as, well, you know, well, we are fairly brainless, aren't we? So <laughs> women are brainless uh, and, and unable to take serious. Not as brainless as men, though, I think is the, pro- is, is, is the point. We're all brainless together. Well, you wonder that. And in the 18th century, in fact, English women were at pains to point out they also had souls as well as brains, because sometimes people seem to forget that too. So women's writing has been rediscovered, I guess. The 18th century women's writing has been rediscovered in the last uh, 40 years or so with some wonderful pioneering efforts from people, you know, going back to libraries and finding these obscure novels on shelves and reading them. And then we discover that, of course, men read women's writing and men read women's novels. Men really enjoyed women's novels. 
and uh, the female quicksuck, for example, was was uh, adored. I mean, literally, Fielding falls over himself to praise uh, the female quicksuck, saying in some case, in some places, she excels. Uh, you know, Cervantes. So, uh, uh, and as as we said, as you said at the beginning, Thea. Johnson really liked her. So men read women's novels and liked them in the period, but we don't hear so much about them now. But so Johnson's praise of of that novel was indicative of of, of the kind of the general public's view at the time, was it? Well, yeah, because she sold the, the, the novel sold relatively well, sold very well. It went on being reprinted right into the early nineteenth century. Uh, it's quite hard to tell exactly about uh, sales in those days, but she was uh, frequently talked of in periodicals. You know, her name kept popping. Most, you know, literate English people would would have known the name Charlotte Lennox if they read, you know, the Gentleman's Magazine. They would have known of her. Mm. Okay, well, so, so tell tell us about that work then. Tell us about. Um... Well, tell us about all of her work, if if you will, but perhaps that novel in particular, the female quicksort, as I have been told to call it now. <laughs> no, sorry, I, I, I'm so glad, Min, because it's, it's wrong. I'm instructing you wrong. But there you go. The 18th century was brilliant about language because they didn't care very much about how you said things or how you spoke. Well, no, but I before this podcast, I um I asked um Rosalind Deneen in in the office um how a British person would pronounce it so that I could try to <laughs> pronounce. Mick, can it I be correctly? honest? What happens in this podcast every single week is Thea does the these ebullient foreign pronunciations of, of European languages that makes me look like some sort of provincial hick. So I'm absolutely delighted that for once the Quixote that uh, she has uh, poured over our ears has been proven to be wrong. It's, this has made my day. The trouble is she has two hurdles to jump. This not only has she got to find an English pronunciation, but then she's got to try and work out how they said it in the 18th century. So that's pretty tall ask for her, really. No chance. Anyway, the female quick soak, what goes on in it? I mean, it's quite, is it a bold move? Because she, like you said, she's got this preposterous confidence that Johnson talked about, but taking on Cervantes must have been a big step in itself. And I was bowled over by this book. It's basically, she takes the premise of someone who reads, just like Cervantes, who reads too many romance novels, who reads all these wonderful novels about impossibly highborn people having, you know, preposterous adventures of romance and love and everything is terribly high flown and uh, bombastic. And you read these novels, you know, basically French novels by Madame de Scudery and people like this. So, uh, so both uh, both Don Quixel and the female Quixel read too many novels and they have their mind addled in some sense uh, because they believe that the world is as it is represented in these novels. So both of these writers are really interested in what happens to a human psyche uh, if a person has a, an inverted, inverted commas, I have to say, wrong notion of what the world is like. So Arabella, ridiculously the heroine of the female quicksilver, um, takes uh, takes ordinary events that happen. There's a new gardener comes to work in the castle where she's, they're always in castles, but anyway, she's, she's, she's living in the castle. A new gardener comes to work there and she thinks he's there, he's a prince in disguise who's come in order to abduct her. And in fact, she runs away because she's so convinced this is going to happen at any moment. And of course, it's absolutely ludicrous. This isn't the case. It's not so. Uh, so she has a she has a she has a perverted understanding of one aspect of her life. But what's wonderful about both of these books is these two protagonists are um, well, they're sort of holy innocents who believe in virtues and ways of living that um, 
uh, a past, a past in the modern world in the 17th, 18th century. We don't have this nobility, this virtue, this chivalry anymore. Uh, but both of the novels make you think, well, you know, is some, has something lost when we don't live like this anymore? Um, but of course, Arabella is a kind of figure of fun. Um, but also not because she uh, she's loved by a by a Mr. Glanville, who's a very intelligent, uh, clever, sceptical, thoughtful man uh, who sees through the nonsense, who sees through the embarrassment and who eventually helps her uh, with, the, with the course of several people to, you know, to clear her brain, to understand that this is these were historical ways of living that don't happen now. Very- um, but what I think what's really brilliant about uh, about Charlotte Lennox and what's why I love the novel so much is because she shows us how intelligent a woman writer can be because she can write Glanville. She can write that character. She can write that man uh, who's, who helps, you know, the, the deluded woman. She can write the relationship without uh, denigrating, without denigrating her for being stupid and believing this because we see her virtue and her innocence and we can, and we can believe in Mr. Glanville uh, and believe that women can write intelligent men. So she's we- a sophisticated figure. Yes. Uh, ben, we could talk about yes. this uh, all day. Uh, we, we should mention Shakespeare because this seems to be striking that so she, not only did she take on Cervantes, she then, as you said, took on Shakespeare in a way that possibly even influenced Johnson, who was to go on and do the same thing with his prefaces. How yes. how good a Shakespearean uh, was she? Well, well, she she doesn't do an edition. I mean, Johnson goes off to do a, you know a full edition of Shakespeare's works, and she takes on Shakespeare. Uh, she takes on a number of plays. Her brief, what she that she sets herself, I guess, is to look at Shakespeare's sources. So she's looking at Shakespeare's sources and she's saying, well, Shakespeare wasn't really very inventive, was he? Because he's just copying, he's taking his uh, plots from Cynthia, from Ariosto, from these people. Uh, she, 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 uh, she's brilliant on Much Ado About Nothing. She says, she says it's absurd and she says that Much Ado About Nothing is absurd and ridiculous. Uh, I can't said, agree with that. <laughs> because she did go on to say that she liked the relationship between Beatrice and Benedict. The, the characters are properly marked and beautifully distinguished. But she was really scathing about it. She said, Shakespeare borrowed just enough, uh, uh, just enough Ariosto, Shakespeare borrowed just enough Ariosto to show his poverty of invention uh, added enough to show his want of judgment. So dear. Oh, I, I, I love an 18th century put down. The, the, the balance of the sentences, they always, you, always get a good, you always get a good hit at the end, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's lovely. That's a beautiful, that's a beautifully balanced sentence, you know, worthy of the great satirist. And that's another thing. So Charlotte Lennox can do satire. She can do jokes. And this isn't in the 18th century a very female thing to do. Um, so uh, I think there's more work to be done, actually, uh, someone to be looking at uh, Lennox's, um, you know, use of satire, because it, it's a very masculine province. You know, if you think back to the Roman satirist, you know, Horace and Juvenal, there's nothing female going on there at all. Uh, and then by the, by the 18th century, it's sure. great to see that women can come along and do satire and actually make you laugh out loud. There are passages in the female quicks that you laugh out loud. You're not laughing at Arabella. You're, you're laughing because... Because the situations are absurd. We'll have to leave it there. What a, what a joy yeah. it is uh, talking to you. And I hope everyone at listening to this is going to go off and not only read the female quicksot, but uh, pronounce it correctly for you. <laughs> we can only hope. <laughs> well, I hope so too. I don't like it. <laughs> Meanwhile, thank you very thank much you indeed. Very... Thank you. Thanks, Min. We didn't even get to the, her magazine. I know. The, we the didn't ladies get to the magazine. Ne- the we didn't really. Museum. There's too much to cover. 
An interesting segue, though, into our next segment. She was funny. She could do satire. She could she could do the jokes. Well, in some way, there's a bit of a theme arising here because um, the idea of women in comedy is going to be a feature of our discussion of comedy and the discussion of our of women on television generally. So, exactly. the, so, so the role uh, of women is always a pressing issue. But it's interesting that had you ever heard of her? Yes, I had. Oh God, I had, but only only I because hadn't. only because of the painting, actually. Oh really? Enough. And yeah, she's kind I, of she's kind of barely mentioned in the description of the painting. Oh, and there's also yeah, Charlotte Lennox. Yeah, she's Lennox sort of there. like an, an addendum. I think she's the last name mentioned. But I saw it at. Um, what is the painting I think, again? I think, I think I saw it at Benningborough Hall, which is a, a you know a big National Trust house in in Yorkshire. Um, I think they have a loan program with the National Portrait Gallery. What's um, the name of the painting again? So uh, the Nine uh, Living Muses of, of, of Great Britain. That's right, that's right. Well, it's, in, it's interesting stuff, and well done for having heard of her. <laughs> thank um, you, thank um, you, um, though um, I cannot pronounce her so the most famous I can't novel. tell you how pleased I am about that. <laughs> Comedy, like many things, doesn't tend to age gracefully, and nothing dies more sadly than a laugh. This week we asked Robert Douglas Fairhurst to watch the 25 top-grossing comedies from the last 30 years. His overall conclusion is a rueful one. It wasn't as much fun as I'd hoped, he said. Of course, comedy, especially when judged in retrospect, is often indicative of something more serious, all of those social anxieties bubbling away under their one-liners. Unsurprisingly, many are about sex and gender, and many don't necessarily stand up to much scrutiny. On the one hand, as Robert notes, many popular comedies seem intended to provide a reassuring fantasy in which men don't have to grow up. On the other, for the female characters in these films, the idea of being stuck in the same old story tends to be rather less funny. Times are changing, perhaps, but in a world of churned-out sequels and enforced franchises, will we look back with much fondness or acclaim on the recent comedic crop? Nobody's perfect, as someone once famously said, but perfection seems rather a long way away. Almost recovered from watching Dumb and Dumber and A Bad Mom's Christmas, joining us on the line is Robert Douglas Fairhurst. Robert, hello. Hello, hello. Um, Did you enjoy doing this? What was it like watching 25 films of this nature? I miss the popcorn. I think that's the first thing to say. That um, If you sit down and you watch a lot of films in a marathon on your own at home with a notepad and a pen uh, and potentially freeze framing to, to write down, you know, uh, witty quips uh, and, you know, barbed exchanges, what you miss is just relaxing into a film with a big bowl of popcorn uh, and allowing it to wash over you. And of course, as everyone says, comedy stops being funny when you start analysing it. And that's especially true of Hollywood comedies, which are so frothy, they're so insubstantial. It's like sort of trying to grab um, handfuls of you know smoke or soap bubbles or something. You start to analyse it, it just dissipates, it disappears. And you said you only laughed three times in what must be, um, you know, Hours and hours and 25 hours. Twenty-five hours, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, no, more fifty hours if it's twenty-five films. Uh, what was? Well, well, but, 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 but interestingly, most of the films are very short. I started writing down um, uh, uh, how long most of the films. Most of them are only an hour and a half or an hour and forty minutes. And if you're paying top whack to go to the cinema, you might feel a bit shortchanged by that. Oh, I disagree. So I'm, t- I'm tired of long. I, I can't yeah. bear if I have to go and see a film and it's three hours long. Do you not think someone just hasn't been bothered to keep the director in check? 
Well, maybe, but I mean, given that they all um, I mean, ruthlessly follow the standard three-act formula, yeah. you know exactly what's going to happen at every stage. I mean, Bergson, Henri Bergson famously said that comedy comes out of, he said, something mechanically encrusted on the living. Uh, so you laugh at people and they stop behaving like people, start behaving like machines. When you start having the same um, kind of one-liners and catchphrases returning again and again and again. Um, I definitely got that feeling while watching these films that this, this was Hollywood's mechanic, something mechanical encrusted on the living. Real actors, real producers, really good directors just churning out the same stuff which they think is what people want. But of course, it turns out that's not what they want. What they want is stuff like Bridesmaids or the film that made me laugh twice, A Bad Mum's Christmas, which I recommend to all our listeners. So wh- why why are those different then? Why did you, what, what, what sets them apart? Because they involve, because by featuring women, they at least are an attempt to, to change the perspective. That's exactly right. So so they have female leads, um, they have realistic families at their heart, um, they have genuinely funny jokes. They're not simply repeating, rehashing old stories and that's something you do find with um uh, especially with a lot of comedies if if they are quite cheaply made and they're designed to make money for the studios that what you get are the same situations the same characters often the same actors when it comes to Judd Apatow's films uh coming back again again and again um and you you feel not so much that you're with a bunch of old friends you're with kind of hangers-on who just won't leave the party there's a line where you say the idea that these women could be as funny themselves as they were in the great screwball comedies of the 1930s and 40s tends not to attract even an arched eyebrow. When when was it that this this truism of women, you know, not being funny? When when did that become so entrenched? I think it's probably when Hollywood comedies uh, stopped being as verbal as they were in in the great screwball age and instead moved far more into slapstick. And of course, slapstick has always been there in, in comedy in Hollywood. You think about Lauren Hardy and Buster Keaton and so on. But I'm thinking about the sort of um, adult uh, slapstick of films in the 1980s and 1990s. And suddenly it's the men who are the ones who get the gags and, of course, get the girls. And the girls are usually just there. The women are just there as uh, kind of accessories or uh, to, to feed the punchlines. Mm. Uh, they're not there as you know, interesting characters in their own right. There's, a, there's an argument that comedies should be a place where licensed fools are provocative. But I get the sense from your, your piece that there's not an awful lot of danger in this. These should be able to confront societal issues in an edgy fashion under the protective umbrella of, of laughter. They don't seem to take that opportunity. Is that fair, do you think? I, th- I think that is fair. And, and, of course, people who write about comedy often try and distinguish between laughter you know, jokes which are the things which are often edgy which which push things to the limits to work out where those limits are and comedy which is the structure which is uh, the arc of the story which is often about reconciliation and restoration and harmony what you find in these films i think is that the laughter and the comedy tend to tug in entirely different directions so these are films which are willing to laugh at sexism and disability and you know there are no taboos but at the end there's still this rather syrupy conclusion in which family values win out and they don't then follow through on their own early promises and presumably some of the danger gets infantilized into disgust one of the other things that comes out of this is it's often about bodily fluids and there's a sort of puerile aspect to it as well yeah i mean disgust is one of those emotions which of course 
pushes people in different directions. Um, it attracts us, it repels us. You know, whether you're checking what comes out of your nose in your hanky or you know, the toilet bowl before you flush. There's the sort of weird, what John Forster, Dickens' friend, called the attraction of repulsion. And a lot of the, the comedies in the 1980s, 1990s, they, they kind of veer towards disgust almost as uh, an end in itself as if what they want are the kind of water cooler conversations that come out of the films. People saying, did you see that disgusting bit in? Dot, well, dot, dot. And Bridesmaids when they all have, I mean, I remember, Bridesmaids is a really funny film, I, I think, when I, when I watched it. But as you say, it ends up with seven women sitting in a wedding dress shop having explosive diarrhoea. At one point, yeah, and and and, and that, that that is something which it, it seems to it be is a funny. piece. Did you know it was funny? It 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 it, 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 made, it made me smile wanly and thinly. <laughs> um, but, but the point That's is your it's reaction to everything. Really, well, yeah, but it, it, it's it's not really part of uh, the overall kind of arc of the comedy. These are set pieces. These are little kind of dirty jewels uh, which are set uh, in the film in order to get people talking about the film. And that, I think, is what you miss from the screwball age. The screwball age of comedy, everything was, was fully integrated. These were kind of beautiful mechanisms in which all the cogs were kind of working together for some common end. Um, and, and more recently, Hollywood, it, it's as if the gag writers have been brought in. Um, the situation comedy has been brought in. But the larger situation, you know, the larger kind of arc of the story or the aim of the film, it is being sort of dissipated by them. But there's a tradition, is there not, of the arc of comedy going back to Shakespeare being the plot itself being rather unconvincing. As you say, the sort of thrust to reconciliation is always there. You know, you think of um, Measure for Measure or really any of the comedies, you know, all of a sudden it's almost as if Shakespeare goes, oh, God, I've got to end this. Everyone gets married and everything's happy, which seems to be a tradition that's kind of maintained in Hollywood because at the very least... You're never left on a cliffhanger. You're never left on an ambivalence. You're left on a, and it all ended happily ever after. No, that that's true. Um, although I suppose a bit like horror films, some of the big franchises um, like uh, Halloween, uh, which, which which often end, or, or the, the Freddy Krueger films, that they often end with a kind of hook to the, uh, the, the the film that's going to come up next if the studio gives the uh, the green light. Um, Bad Moms, for instance, uh, there's a definite kind of uh, hook at the end of that, waiting for the sequel, which then, of course, Judy comes up with a Bad Moms Christmas. Um, yeah, and, and I, I don't want to sound, you know, joyless and mirthless <laughs> um, about it. The, the, these are these are films which are what in a piece I call kind of popcorn comedies, or they're attempting to be popcorn comedies. You're, you're taking. Um, kind of kernels of you know solid matter, uh, which are you know big questions to do with you know sex and gender and uh, politics and so on, uh, and you're blowing them up into something which is as light as air. And to be honest, by and large, they succeed. That they they do what you're expecting them to do. People aren't going to these films expecting them to be you know Brokeback Mountain. Well, on on a final point though, you you point out in your piece that they are doing rather less well. They're attracting fewer viewers than than they than they used to commercially. They're they're less lucrative. Why do we think that is? I quote a Hollywood executive a couple of years ago saying that the trouble with a lot of contemporary Hollywood comedies is they just don't travel well. They don't travel well because they're often dealing with rather kind of, if not insular American concerns. There is a definite pitch to the multiplex American Canadian market. The jokes, the reference points, the assumptions about, you know, soccer mums and kind of deadbeat dads. And 
the kinds of things that they're making jokes about don't necessarily work terribly well in, say, China or India uh, or, or even in Britain. So that's one of the reasons why perhaps certain British comedies, like the Mr. Bean comedies, mm. have done fabulously well all over the world, much better than they have done in Britain. Because, because they're, they're based on silent comedy, and, mm. and, and, and silent comedy slapstick is something that does translate. Awful, it does mm. no, well, Mr. Bean used to be, abs- I don't know whether it's still the case, but it used to be absolutely huge in France. I'm sure that's absolutely. right. Yeah. <laughs> but have you ever seen it? It's, just, yeah. it's, it's unbelievably bad, though, isn't it? <laughs> It is, but it's it's going back to the French tradition of Monsieur Hulot, mm. and it's going back to um, you know, 1920s uh, Hollywood slaps. Yeah. So in some ways, it's a sort of um, uh, sort of nostalgia fest, and also it's really cheap to translate because there's so little exactly. dialogue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's very cu- culturally very pared back, very neutral canvas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just absolutely, absolutely follow up. Your worst film you saw, twenty five. If, if there's one, you, you're recommending Bad Moms Christmas, which I think is important. Seasonal. <laughs> yeah, and it, we, we can slowly build up to, to watching in the next in the coming months. Worst one that you really wanted to fast forward. Wow, that that that, that there's there's quite a lot to choose from. Um, <laughs> I would say the one that's dated worst, yeah. uh, and the one which where the comedy I thought was really kind of weak and and uneasy um is something like beverly hills cop um oh beverly hills no. cop, which, which which of course I, I i remember fondly from when it first came yeah, out yeah i've seen but, it recently looking, I quite look, looking it. back on it now no. um it, it's it's slow it's clunky the racial politics are yeah. that's true of eddie, that's true of eddie murphy's stand-up you watch raw which of course was a huge hit when they made that into a um the, i think they released that in the cinema his stand-up but it's very of its it's very of his time. He is, yeah, and he's kind of preserved in amber in some ways because his big hits were all in the eighties, and then he just lost his way and went to do some very bad sort of family films. And but maybe people yeah, people yeah. have a nostalgia for him, and you don't think it bears up when you actually look at it again. I don't because it's it's trying to be both um, edgy buddy cop drama. And it's also trying to be slapstick comedy, and it's trying to be a stand-up routine in disguise. Um, and all those elements, they don't blend, they curdle. Uh, and I just found it deeply uncomfortable to watch it. Really, how interesting. Surely Dumb and Dumber's worse, though. Can we agree on that? Dumb and Dumber is a, an, a kind of deliberately, avowedly, kind of playfully dumb film. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's not trying to be anything that it's not. It is uh, appealing to kind of lowest possible common denominator the and it's exceeding boy. brilliant <laughs> yeah, the teenage boy indeed Robert Douglas first thank you very much indeed I quite like Beverly Hills Cup I thought but maybe I've not seen it in comedy does not age I think is a really is a really or travel or travel but it doesn't age either so the preoccupations of like, I bet if we watch he talks about Mrs Doubtfire Robert does and also says that in Some Like It Hot when with that famous ending Nobody's Perfect yeah. is quite actually a very progressive and racy conclusion Yeah, you then compare that to Mrs Doubtfire where everyone sort of goes oh a guy in a dress yeah. hilarious yeah, yeah well it's interesting isn't it how, how um, and we didn't really go into this so much just, just now just talking but um, how so little has changed in, in the kind of the in a in a big expanse of time uh, the films that Robert was watching there m- basically it all boils down to isn't it funny when a man dresses like a woman or, tries or, to, or, tries or, or manifests sex, yeah. as a woman somehow or tries to have sex with a woman possibly, possibly. Or, or tries to have sex with a woman but it's it's just it's funny it's almost like the most outlandish thing we can think of is that a woman that a man would want to be a woman to to degrade himself somehow yeah or come down a step or two in the hierarchy there's a truth there if only we could grasp at it isn't well there, the only one like the only the only kind of 
opposite that I can think. The only time when it's it's funny for a woman to be dressing as a man is is Bob and Blackadder. That's all I can think of. That's the only time that it's that is funny though. It is very funny, but that that's the exception, isn't it? It's usually the other way around. Mrs. Doubtfire, Some Like It Hot. Yeah, that's right. Because it's it's men playing women. Even if you go back to the, the history of of, yeah. of of comedy as well. Let's just think about how funny Bob is. Yeah. <laughs> in two episodes, actually, in, in both four and two. Yeah, she is. Yeah, hurrah. Excellent. Hurrah! <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Let's keep to the sexual and racial politics of the screen. This week, Alice Wadsworth has reviewed two books for the TLS, Stealing the Show, How Women Are Revolutionising Television by Joy Press, and Diana Adesola Maffey's Where No Black Woman Has Gone Before, Subversive Portrayals in Speculative Film and TV. The first is something of a celebration of female empowerment in a traditionally male world. Press has spoken to Lena Dunham of Girls fame, who talks of crossing TV's last frontier of female sexuality. She praises the comedian Amy Schumer for having honed the perfect feminist rape joke. But is this all a success story, really? Alice notes that just 37% of protagonists in the top-grossing films were female and just 14% were black. Press's book seems to skirt over issues of race almost completely. Which brings us to Maffei, who looks at how sci-fi and fantasy films, traditionally the preserve of the white male, it must be said, treat issue of gender and race. She is more sceptical and critical of the status quo. To talk us through this all, Alice joins us in the studio. Alice, hello. Hello. Firstly, Joy Press's title, Women Revolutionising TV, do you buy that? Is that uh, Have we got there, do you think? No, I don't feel we have. I definitely think there's a lot to commend. We've moved forward in lots of ways, but when we move forward, there is often a pushback, like we're talking about with different representations with Mrs Doubtfire you were speaking out earlier. 
I think it's important to keep questioning where we are and not be too congratulatory, otherwise we fall into that backlash. So it's the fact that Joe Press did use the word revolutionise is possibly why I'm a little bit more critical of her reading because I wouldn't say it's quite as revolutionary a lot of the shows that she's looking at. Also, you do point out that since the turn of the millennium, there are actually fewer women yeah. on screen in these roles. Yeah, the numbers have dipped. How is that happening? I find that, bearing in mind the, the cultural politics of our day, that almost feels extraordinary to me. And yet, well, why is that? Then? Do you think there's a backlash to the backlash? Is that what's happening? It's possible. There is a kind of confirmation bias idea where people think that if they've seen lots of films with women in, then they commend themselves for thinking that we're already in a feminist world where there are many films like that. And then a few years down the line, those films probably won't do as well because they've already been done, as it were. So Bridesmaids was a f- quite a few years ago 2011? Yeah. Did and you it, like Bridesmaids? I did like Bridesmaids. See, I, I thought, have you seen Bridesmaids? But you mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It I is fun, and, it, well, and I remember watching it with my wife, and mm. it was laugh out loud funny, and it was, but it wasn't revolutionary. It was just taking the, the, the gags of a male gross-out comedy and putting it in the mouths of, yeah. of women. That was, yeah. that was basically the, the, the shtick, wasn't it? That's not, but, yeah. that rev- that's not revolutionary. No. The, and the idea being that we've done that now, so we, we've bought ourselves some time to just get back to doing what we were doing before. Yeah, and the next big female ensemble comedy is the new Oceans film, Oceans uh, which is... <laughs> looks atrocious. Have you yeah, seen it? Yeah, I haven't seen it, but that doesn't look like something which is going to be revolutionary necessarily. But also, I wonder, that's an interesting film, Ocean's 8, and, and Ghostbusters was the other remake that, that mm, did this. And yeah. I never, I've not seen either of them, but I never know whether the criticism of them is cloaked in misogyny or actually the, the fact that some misogynists hate it also obscures the fact that it might not be a very good film. It's very hard to have an, an honest reaction to that to that film, it seems, in, in, in how it's reported. Yeah, I think both... Both cases are true. I mean, I I say it looks atrocious because I think it it just looks like a bad film. Yes, so there are women in the lead roles. That's not going to make me think it's a good film. And, you know, it also makes me just feel slightly manipulated that people think that it's just as easy as as taking a male formula and putting women in those roles to to make us think that things are better. Which, again, comes to the idea of revolution seems to be the very opposite, doesn't it? No, it's it's the status quo. It's it's a continuation. So is Girls, which features heavily in this book, Lena Dunham's uh, show, is it a feminist triumph? And is it a feminist triumph because it shows lots of nudity, lots of sex, and it's written not by a man with the male gaze, but by a woman. It's important to make the distinction between something being being a good feminist or being good for feminism on the whole. Okay. And girls, if it were part of a wider landscape, which had a lot more shows that looked into women from all different backgrounds who are more diverse, then there wouldn't be a problem with girls and there would be a lot to commend it for and it would be a great show. Unfortunately... It's more the fact that someone like Lena Dunham at 23 gets that opportunity to write girls and to show that perspective of a very rarefied New York life that is rarefied and not many people share. And so that even though there are feminist messages in girls, there are some good things in girls. I do think Hannah's nudity is a good thing. I definitely. Why is that? Why is that? Well, because we're just not as used to seeing someone so confident in their body and sexuality who is even slightly more than very thin, yeah. who's a woman. Unfortunately, that's still very slightly 
you know, controversial. Whether that's revolutionary and definitely not the last frontier for women on television <laughs> is a different question when you think about the fact that Joy Press's book shows in lots of ways mo- most of these women who she's talking about are middle to upper class white women who even if they are like Lena Dunham, slightly closer to, I mean, she wouldn't even be plus sized or overweight necessarily, but slightly curvier. That in itself is seen as revolutionary and that is patronising, I think. Because I asked lots of people in the office and loads of people like girls. I didn't like any of the characters in it. And I'm not sure I can watch a comedy if everyone in it is unlikable. And I know that was kind of the point to be a bit edgy and, and everyone was flawed, but they were so flawed that I didn't want any of them to prosper. And so I just thought, well, why am I, why am I watching this? Yeah, I hated all of them. Does I that really stop? Did. Does that? I mean, I'm, I'm, it might be frightfully unsophisticated to take that view. Did, did that? Did that affect your enjoyment of it? It did make it hard. I didn't watch it all the way through to the last series because, partly because of that reason, probably because of hating them so much. Also, <laughs> <laughs> the reoccurring storylines. There was only so much they could do that I kind of would go along with them for. But yeah, I do think there's an issue when you have characters that hateable. But that is something that's important about the show. I think it is important to show women who aren't likeable. That's what Mindy Kaling says in her interview in Stealing the Show, which is an interesting one, who is the writer of um, The Mindy Project. And she plays a doctor. And even though her show, again, is quite focused on her love life in lots of different ways, she talks about it being important to make a character that wasn't likeable and that unlikability is one of the worst words to follow a woman around when it comes to being in television. That's interesting. It's not a gender thing for me. I, I, I couldn't watch Mad Men because I thought everyone really yeah. was a dick. And Same. I just thought, I was just, really? Yeah, just, I just thought, why? I, I, don't don't see, I don't see the likeability, not likeability thing, really. Really? No, that doesn't. I find it quite compelling if I, if I, if I don't like someone's character. I guess I want to spend time with someone and I've got to be invested <laughs> I've got to be invested in whether they yeah. s- they succeed or fail yeah so for me Mad Men was just it was it was a bit like girls it was so pleased with itself and the smugness kind of radiated it was basically oh look we can dress people in nice suits and they smoke the whole time aren't we cute and I just thought that radiated off the screen to me and therefore there was no heart to it That's I think I-, I think for me the reason I found girls you know well well written everything that you said but just in the end it tailed off and I and I wasn't gripped by it was because of the as you said the rarefied experience there's only so many times you can watch people doing the same things in the same social circles again and again and again um and I think that's why Joy Presser's book which which you begin by reviewing it sounds like a missed opportunity for a book whereas the second book the Diana Adesola Maffey book that sounds mu- a much kind of a, a much meatier proposition. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed Diana Matthews' book because the insight she's looking into, even when she looks at, you know, Alien versus Predator, which isn't a film that I would necessarily watch without <laughs> reading George something George Berridge like of the TLS it. would watch that film. Yeah. <laughs> he, lo- he loves the Predator and Alien films. Well, all of a sudden now there are lots of great insights about the monstrous feminine that make me want to watch all of them in one go. So what's her, what's her thesis? Uh, Well, she has quite a few, but with Alien versus Predator, (laughs) there's a lot about the monstrous feminine, which is Barbara Creed's thesis. And also she talks about the male gaze with Laura Mulvey as well. Um, So those are kind of 
I suppose the main thinkers she would use. The fear of fertility. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting way to read all of these films and TV programs. Not least because Alien has a bursting a woman a, a, a woman giving birth to an alien yeah. bursting out mm-hmm. of it. I don't want to ruin it for people who have not seen it <laughs> I have done that so right, spoiler yeah. alert but, but there is that moment in it where where an alien yeah. pops out and she calls aliens vaginal face huggers at one point in the book as well she's got some great terms for how they yeah vaginal face huggers <laughs> And, yeah. and what's the theory that there's a that's this kind of it's a it's a horror because it's a bunch of men frightened of women. Well, in in one sense, yes, <laughs> and that the monstrous feminine is continuous reproduction, which I put in the piece is also she relates to the Reaganite fear of welfare queens. So mm. the idea that people are just constantly having children and they're going to take over the status quo, mm. and usually in Alien versus Predator, but also in the other Predator and Alien films. The body that is set against the alien or the predator is some sort of military body, usually, Mm. um, or they're exploring in, you know, outer space, or these areas are usually very much white masculine areas. Mm. And actually, 28 Days Later, she does another reading of The Monstrous Feminine, and in that film as well, they go through... Have you seen that where they're running away from zombies, yes. rage yeah. virus, um, which again, rage virus, monstrous feminine. You can see certain connections there. But they uh, try and take shelter with the army at one point and then get in further trouble. Dan Matthew looks into the ways in which that can read as a colonialist narrative. How do Hegel and Foucault come into it all? Well, she solid question there, Thea. <laughs> in all different... What I want to know yeah, yeah, is how exactly. Hegel and Foucault yeah, relate exactly. to this. Well, Foucault and Fanon come in a lot because she's looking just. In general, when she's discussing colonialism and colonialist imagery, it's in Children of Men she talks about probably Fanon and Foucault the most. Where does race come into all this? Because your criticism of Joy Press's book, that it's very passes over intersectionality almost entirely, this is much more about the black experience. What, what is her conclusion there, that it is a very white male world? Is that changing? What, what's, the, what's the outcome? Well, she looks particularly at these roles because she knows that she talks about speculative fiction being an area in which you can explore so many different roles for black women. Like, it is an area for the imagination, and why should it be a step of the imagination to have leading roles that are female and black? But in 2017, the statistics I was looking at about women on screen showed that in the top grossing sci-fi films, the top 100 grossing, only 4% of those had female protagonists at all, no matter what colour they were. So not only is it the area with the most possibilities, and Yuhura from Star Trek represents that, but it's also an area which has probably the least representation. And yet, is that changing though? Because if you look at, say, Wonder Woman that year, Black Panther, the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe seems to be at least dominated or rather motivated by a desire for equality. Yeah, and I think Black Panther's a huge part of that. And is that a shifting, yeah. do you think that's a shifting where, where you can have... Because X-Men is at one level about being in a minority and how minorities are treated by the state. So the re- as sort of comic book fantasy takes over more and more, the opportunity will increase, you might think. Yes, but then it's important to keep an eye on it because one of the things that Diane Maffey does talk about in relation to Zoe Saldana actually being in Avatar and Guardians of the Galaxy. In both of those, she is not a woman of colour in the traditional sense. She's green and she's blue. So even though that is a representation of a mixed-race woman on television, you don't see her in that identity. And so 
we might see more speculative roles which do look at different races or do look at marginalized characters but sometimes we might forget about relating that to the people who are marginalized in our own society yeah. and there just still aren't that many representations and of it might be a safe place screen. to do it, it yeah. you, you might feel like oh, that's an acceptable place to, to put a mixed race woman uh, in a fantasy because it's not it's not real yeah whereas black panther at least creates its own mythology which presumably is relevant i suppose yeah it's less threatening as well because there isn't the history that comes with being that woman of color instead she is from a totally different alien race and we don't have to think about having maligned them in any sort of historically and all of this is is not to mention and we can't go into this now we'll have to have a separate podcast but class the differences in class there are there are so few portrayals of, of people of any class other than the kind of class that you don't mention you know it's sort of just middle class it's yeah. Which is the girl, which is the which is which of, is exactly what we were saying with girls, but tends to be the same for all of these things. They exist and they exist in a kind of a world where there is no class, it's just the class that everyone belongs to. The yeah. middle class, everything's comfortable. It yeah. feels like we could have done a lot more on all three of the things we've talked about today, but I think that's all we've got time for this week. Our thanks go to Alice Wadsworth, to Min Wilde and to Robert Douglas Fairhurst. Do make sure you're subscribing to the TLS or buy this week's paper. We have this film special, as you know, and so much more. Next week, the 100th show will tell stories from our summer double special. Make sure you don't miss it. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.